If you'd still like to apply to the Spectator's Economic Innovator of the Year Awards, there's time to do so. The deadline has now been extended to Friday the 23rd of June. Wherever you're based in the UK, we can't wait to hear about the successes of your business and the impact you're making on the economy and society in 2023. To learn more and apply, please visit spectator.co.uk forward slash innovator. Hello and welcome to the Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, literary editor of The Spectator, and this week my guest is Andrew Ponson, whose new book is The Universe in a Box, A New Cosmic History. Now, it contains an awful lot about cosmic history, but it's a history actually of, of something almost more precise and interesting than that, which is how we simulate and how we create models of the universe. Andrew, can you start by telling our listeners sort of a little bit about what exactly it is you do and how you how you got into it. There's a lovely little superhero origin story you include. Yeah, I come into it in a really roundabout way, I suppose. Uh, What we're trying to do at its heart is understand the universe. So it's really asking the question, where did we come from? And, uh, you know, when you look out into the night sky, you see a handful of stars. But uh, if you go somewhere really dark, you maybe see a few hundred or a few thousand. That's still the tip of the iceberg. I think we know the universe is absolutely enormous. And so understanding what's out there, how it gave rise to us here on a rocky planet, and putting all of that together into a sort of coherent picture, that's at the heart of of what we do. And the way I ended up doing that is, is almost by accident, really. I was doing a physics degree, and I was just terrible at doing lab experiments. So I was looking for a way to avoid doing uh, lab experiments and uh, going into uh, astrophysics and cosmology. Well, since we can't experiment on the universe, uh, this seemed like a good way of getting away from labs. Now, you write in the book um, that, you know, obviously science and the scientific method has been going on for many, many centuries, but that this idea of building models and simulation is a much newer tool. Can you talk a bit about the origins of it? Because I sort of think back, you know, we had astrolabes and things like that and the Antikythera device. And, and Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It's, it's absolutely true to say technology has always been a major part of science, right from the start, and even if you trace it back into antiquity, as you say. But I think the, the, the real revolution came about with programmable computers. Now, the, the furthest back you can really trace this idea is to the 19th century and to the work of Charles Babbage and Ada Lovelace, who conceived the idea of a machine that could be instructed to calculate anything. And, and that was a major departure. There, there were machines available for doing specific calculations. So adding numbers, say, or calculating the uh, orbits of the planets in our solar system, for example. But the, the, the new departure here in the 19th century was the idea, you can make a machine that without having to change the machine at all, just by giving it instructions in a sort of coded way, you can get it to calculate anything you like. And, and Ada Lovelace actually was the first person to write that this could give us a way of really revealing new secrets about nature, about working out how do things actually operate in the universe by getting the machine to do a lot of very complicated calculations for us and kind of allowing us humans to see the results from that and integrate it into a much bigger picture. And does this come hand in hand with the idea that mathematics, which obviously, again, has been present in some respects since the ancient world, was the heart of how you would understand the rules of reality. Yeah, I mean, certainly mathematics has been at the core of physics and science since the Enlightenment. So what Ada Lovelace recognised is that because you can write the laws of physics in mathematical, explicitly mathematical form, if you have a machine that can carry out any mathematical calculation, then it can actually start calculating what's going on in the universe, and in some sense, mimicking the vast complexity of the way that the universe operates. Now, you say there there are sort of three things you talk about early on. You you want to draw a semi-distinction between a simulation, a model, and an algorithm. Can you Mm. 
in a kind of con- concise way, explain what, what the differences between those things are and how you work with them. Yes, I mean, all, all of these things are in very common use throughout science and, and in fact, throughout society in all sorts of, of different ways. And there's a bit of a fuzzy line between them. But an, an algorithm is essentially a set of rules that we can use to make decisions. So, for example, there can be an algorithm that decides whether or not you're going to be accepted for life insurance, as, as just as an example. And it might take into account a variety of factors and combine them in some determined way to come up with an, an answer to that question. Will this company accept you or not for life insurance? Um, a, a model is is something a bit more than that. It's something that tries to capture some elements of of what goes on in reality. So to expand on the life insurance example, that might be something that starts to say, well, what are the risk factors involved in life insurance? So so can we start putting together a model of how different types of behaviours and and different lifestyle factors affect uh, whether you're a good or a a bad prospect for for life insurance? So the model would inform the algorithm in this case? Yes, the model would inform the algorithm. The algorithm might be built as a kind of realisation of a particular model of of your particular, um, of, of the different factors that affect your health. Now, a simulation really builds on that idea of a model, but becomes a lot more complicated. It's when you say, well, there are so many different interacting factors here that uh, we can't just write them all down on one piece of paper and understand them all at once using maths. We, we are now going to have to imagine there are loads of different interacting factors. We can write down some simple rules about how the different factors interact with each other, but we're going to have to take all of these and we're going to have to build something that's much, much bigger than what any individual human could look at on a piece of paper and allow all of these different factors to interact with each other and kind of see what comes out. And so so when you get to this point of a simulation, it becomes extremely powerful. You can do things like simulating stock markets, for example, um, or simulating how an aircraft might fly. And the different elements that go into this will be, be very different. But the point is that a computer is, is the perfect tool for doing this because it can take all you know, a huge variety of different considerations and see how they work together to produce a, a final outcome. Well, when you talk about the prehistory, as it were, of what you do in modelling you know, the universe itself, you start with the weather. Mm. And you say that these are the sort of earliest attempts to create this sort of complex, you know, overdetermined system and give it some sort of rigorous mathematical or simulative basis. And some of those early people doing that, as you describe it, you know, they weren't yet using computers, weren't they? And there's this extraordinary character, Lewis Fry Richardson, Mm. you describe, who's an early hero of the weather forecasting world. Yeah, I mean, it, it is absolutely remarkable that, I mean, a, around about the turn of the 20th century, a select group of meteorologists started to think about, well, how can we use the laws of physics to predict the weather? Because, because up till then, I mean, weather forecasts existed, but they were essentially based on rules of thumb. They, they had existed since the early days of the telegraph, in fact, so that if you knew that a storm was coming, you had some idea about which way the storm might track. So if you, if you had a telegraph system, you, you could just relay news of the storm ahead of time, and it was possible to put together some weather forecasts. But in the early part of the 20th century, meteorologists started to really dream about but what, what if instead of just using these rules of thumb, we actually apply the laws of physics to this? Because the, the atmosphere and the weather that results from the atmosphere ought to be analysable with those laws of physics. And as you say, Lewis Fry Richardson is an extraordinary character who, in the midst of World War I, I mean, he, he was on the front line of World War I, actually working um, with the, the Friends Ambulance because he, he, uh, he didn't want to fight. But he was at the front line of World War I. And in his spare time, he was trying to use physics to uh, produce a, a weather forecast. Now, th- this was an absolutely enormous, enormous undertaking. He wasn't trying to do it for any practical purpose. He just wanted to prove that it was possible. And he was trying to essentially uh, forecast some weather that had happened long in the past. There was, there was no way he could apply this as a practical tool 
to forecast the future as we do today. But he had uh, some weather maps from long in the past, and all he wanted to do was make a, a forecast, a sort of lunchtime forecast based on weather maps that he had obtained uh, for a, an early morning set of uh, weather conditions. So this took an enormous amount of calculation uh, we still have the, the forms, actually, that, that he used. They look like almost like, you know, a, a real written out version of a horrible Excel spreadsheet or, or a horrible <laughs> tax return or something. I mean, it really looks like the stuff of nightmares and so many calculations. And he just sat there day after day after day doing more and more and more calculations in order to do this six hour weather forecast. No practical purpose at all, just to prove the point. The way that the weather transfers into, you know, the cosmic calculations that are made has to do with this idea. You talk about these kind of quite rigorous equations for fluid dynamics. And I think for most, you know, most of us who are non-physicists will have a sort of vague apprehension that atoms and so forth bound around like billiard balls on a table, you know, sort of junior school Brownian motion experiments. But obviously we can't track individual particles and their impacts on each other with you know, trad particle mechanics. So how do people who are modelling the movement of large bodies of, of fluid stuff do it? How do these equations work? I mean, is it something that you aggregate statistically? Yes, in, in effect, it's a kind of statistical argument that you're making. But it goes back to equations called the, the Navier-Stokes equations. Now, the book doesn't get into gory equations, but is able to summarise what, what the content of those equations is. And it's remarkable in a way, because as you say, you know, underlying all this, if you could zoom in and actually see our atmosphere, it is, of course, made up of, of tiny molecules, and the molecules are made up of atoms and so on. But what these Navier-Stokes laws do is they say, well, let's not worry about that. Let's just say that en masse, you can imagine sort of a, a big body of air obeys certain rules, irrespective of, of what it's made of. So one example rule would be something called the conservation law. And, and it that has a mathematical form, but it's actually quite easy to understand what it's saying. It's, it's simply saying that uh, material doesn't appear or disappear. So this immediately is actually very powerful because it tells you weather is not about suddenly a rain cloud appears from nowhere or, or suddenly there's lots of extra air. It, it has to consist of moving material from one part of the earth to another. And that combined with some other insights. So, for example, there's, a, there's an insight about forces that things only move if there's forces acting on them and you have to calculate those forces quite carefully but when you when you put these laws together in aggregate they are incredibly powerful despite the fact that in some sense you might argue well they're not describing the reality of what's going on but they are describing something that is nonetheless such a powerful viewpoint on what is going on that it enables things like the modern weather forecast and indeed simulations of the rest of the universe. And when you're simulating the universe using you know, these laws and adding different laws for different aspects of it, what is it that you find? I mean, one of the things that I think is quite startling to a lay reader is how much, how useful simulation has been in discovering whole aspects of reality that feels a bit bit cart for the horsey, doesn't it? That you, you'd think you figure out how reality works and then you plug it into a simulation and find out whether your simulation's any good. But it, it works the other way around, doesn't it? That's right. And I, I think one of the reasons I started with the weather is because the weather is very tangible and, you know, we, we can understand what it is that we're at least trying to simulate. When we go over to cosmology and we start trying to simulate the universe, we're dealing with sort of two problems at once. <laughs> one is just the immensity of it and the fact that we somehow have to fit this into our computers. And that's a problem just as much for weather forecasters uh, as it is for, for cosmologists. But as you say, the, the other problem is that we don't actually know everything about the universe that we're trying to simulate. Now, one of the really striking known facts about our universe is that, in fact, 95% of it appears to be made of materials that we, we don't encounter here on Earth. 
And simulations have actually played a, a major role in making the case for that. I mean, one of the things that's this very is dark hard, matter and dark energy. This is dark, about, dark matter and dark energy. That's exactly right. And and one of the things that I'm trying to convey in the book is that dark matter and dark energy, make no mistake, these have been invented. We've made them up. It, 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 it's absolutely true to say that the origin of these two ideas is looking at the universe going, oh, well, that, that doesn't seem to quite make sense. Um, what about if you know, there was some extra stuff that we can't see? It, it really is as simple as that. But what simulations have been able to do is to be able to take that idea. So, so we take that idea, there's some extra stuff out there. It has cer- certain properties, which we can get into. But you know, we, we think we know something about what that extra stuff must do. And because we can then code that into our simulations, we it's can effects, make... Effectively, it, it's effects, effectively. It's effects. Yeah, that's right. Because we, can, we can tell the computer, let's just assume that that's out there in the universe and, and trace through what its effects would be. And the really beautiful thing is then the computer can make predictions for, well, what should we see in the real universe? This dark matter and dark energy, despite being invisible, certainly has very tangible effects on what we can see. The computer can go and calculate those effects for us and in effect make a prediction for what our telescopes should see next. And the reason that people take dark matter and dark energy so seriously, despite them being effectively just made up fixes is is precisely because simulations have made such precise correct predictions for for what we should find and i mean i'm really interested in this question of how the simulation shows up dark matter and dark energy because if i'm getting this right it's to do with the sort of the way there's a whole lot of nothing mm that the universe turns out to be a kind of stringy three-dimensional web rather than a nicely evenly distributed bunch of planets and stars and galaxies and so forth. Um, can you explain what, how, how we derived that discovery? Yeah, yeah, that is the central point about this, that when we look out at the universe today with our very powerful telescopes, we can see, first of all, that it is vast, as as I hinted earlier on. I mean, it's actually very hard to comprehend just how vast it is, even for, for somebody like me who deals with this every day. You know, the, our galaxy, the Milky Way, has hundreds of billions of stars, but that galaxy in turn is just one of um, perhaps trillions in the universe at large. So there's the immensity of it. And then on top of that, all of those galaxies don't just scatter at random, as you say. They form into a very particular shape that we call the cosmic web. And if you picture a sort of tangled cobweb, then you've got roughly the right picture in your mind, that it, it is a, a very sort of tangly structure, but it's got sort of sheets and filaments where there are lots and lots of galaxies. And then in between those, it's got large empty spaces. And in order to make something like that, you need a very strong force to be acting over really immense distances. The kind of distances we're talking about here really are enormous. I mean, I'm talking about hundreds of millions of light years, if that helps. But of course, you know, it's just hard to relate to what that really means. But but I mean, it is as big as you can possibly imagine. Let's just say that. So so you have you must have these forces acting over truly gargantuan distances. And dark matter generates gravity that is capable of doing that, according to our simulations. So in fact, if you look at the history of this, in the 1980s, right around the time people were building telescopes capable of finding this cosmic web, just at the same time, people also uh, started uh, making simulations, you know, computers were just getting powerful enough. And and it's a st- sort of story of co-discovery in a, in a sense that the, this structure was discovered within computers right around the same time it was discovered for real in the universe at large. And so I, I think, you know, this role for simulations has been really underappreciated in a sense that uh, it was right there, just as this this case for dark matter was becoming compelling. And this case for dark matter, as I understand it, is it, it's, it's a noceum. We can't, it passes straight through anything that, you know, nothing has any physical contact with it. And yet it exerts a gravitational pull. And so that's created 
you know, where it clumps up, creates these filaments and so forth. Dark energy, on the other hand, you say is the thing that's making these filaments much longer than we otherwise expect them to be. Is that so? Yes. So dark matter was discovered first, but quite quickly people realised it wasn't enough on its own to account for what was being seen. And in fact, based on that, people started suggesting, well, there must be something that's not just, you know, on on these gargantuan scales, something is pulling things into shape. But on even larger scales, if you you can even imagine that, there seems to be a, a net push that is kind of pushing the universe apart as well on even larger scales. So you have almost a sort of competition between the, the relative push and pull of the, the dark matter and the dark energy. Now, what I think was really striking about this in relation to simulations is that at first, people were, were playing with their simulations going, well, you know, to, to get this cosmic web to have the right shape and size compared to what we see in the real universe, we need to have this dark energy as well as the dark matter. So it came from sort of trying to get the, the, the cosmic web to be the right scale. But then, subsequent to that, astronomers using the Hubble Space Telescope found direct evidence for the fact that something is pushing our universe apart. This was a discovery in in 1998 that that won the people doing that that, uh, Hubble Space Telescope study the Nobel Prize. But the fact that their work was instantly taken so seriously was in large part because there was actually already a suspicion because of this work with simulations, that there must be something pushing our universe apart on, on very large scales. So it, it, despite the fact that it sounds almost crazy, like we've lost our minds, we're, we're inventing all of these things, it locks together into this very coherent set of evidence at, at which simulations are absolutely at the heart of it. There's a most moving and funny moment in this book where you describe the Hubble telescope takes its first look into effectively our deep past and it goes worldwide and everybody goes oh my god it's full of stars and yet the scientists all go what where are all the stars (laughs) yeah yeah that's right so i mean we're talking now what 1994 something like that so i was still at school but i distinctly remember seeing this on the news it was a big thing that the hubble space telescope had been pointed at essentially a blank patch of the sky something where nobody had seen anything before intentionally just to look as far as it possibly can into space and see what's out there. And, and yeah, so I, th- I think, you know, for all of us who were, were watching at home, it's, just, it's mind-boggling. It's a tiny patch of the sky, something like a tenth of the diameter of the moon. And when you look at it, there's just galaxy after galaxy after galaxy. Every dot of light you see in that picture is another galaxy. But yes, you're right. I mean, the professional astronomers were instead surprised about the opposite. They had been expecting to see far more galaxies in there and far brighter and bigger galaxies. And that's because the simulations at that point really weren't sophisticated enough. They weren't making good predictions for the galaxies themselves, which brings us sort of all the way back to the intrinsic difficulty of doing this. So even if you accept the presence of dark matter and dark energy, the fact that the universe is so large and that galaxies are very complicated things when it comes down to it, means it's extremely hard to get all the detail you need into your simulation to get the right answers. And so, frankly, nobody had quite predicted correctly what the galaxies would look like when you peered over such large distances with the Hubble Space Telescope. And by the way, we're seeing something somewhat similar play out right now with the James Webb Space Telescope where, uh, you know, if you believe the headlines, there's a total crisis because the James Webb Space Telescope is discovering things that don't quite agree with what we predicted. But I I think we all have to calm down a little bit about that. I mean, it's incredibly powerful data and it's, it's teaching us a lot, but our simulations aren't perfect. We don't expect them to get everything perfectly right. We have to use them in a very considered way taking into account that there are stringent limitations on, on what you can believe within these simulations. Just briefly and parenthetically, and I don't want to sound completely obsessed with dark matter, but I find it so interesting in this book. You describe how, I think it's in galaxy formation, there's a whole thing where every now and again stars go bang and they send a whole lot of dark matter shooting out of the centre of the galaxy and effectively 
shedding some of it, which means that the galaxy has less gravitational pull, which means that more gas escapes a bit, I guess, and the galaxy formation, you know, star formation starts to stop. And there's this sort of series of burps that send get rid of dark matter. I hope I'm expressing this kind of vaguely correctly. But something that I, I just thought, if dark matter passes through everything, I understand, how, how does an exploding star have any effect on it at all? Yeah, uh, it's, a, it's a great question. There are multiple things going on here. So at its heart, what you're illustrating there is the, the, the exact complexity that I'm talking about. If you want to get how galaxies work correct, you need to get all the way down to understanding how individual stars might reach the end of their lives and, and explode in, in, in supernovae. Now, what we do know about that is that when it happens, you can have an absolutely spectacular explosion. And the first effect of that explosion is indeed on gas. That is, you know, gas made out of materials that are much more familiar to us here on, on Earth, mainly hydrogen and helium, but, but also other heavier elements, oxygen, carbon, all of these things are directly affected by the explosion of individual stars. So the first thing that happens when one of these supernovae goes off is a large amount of this sort of regular gas, if you like, gets pushed out of the galaxy. And that already matters because it means, well, there's there's less gas in that galaxy now, and therefore there's less sort of fuel available to form further generations of stars within that galaxy. So that, that's the sort of first part of the story. Then there's a second part to the story, which has come into sharp focus much more recently, which is that dark matter can also get expelled from these galaxies. And as you say, that sounds a bit surprising because we don't believe that dark matter can be pushed on directly. But it turns out that gravity is enough to make this happen. So if you imagine that a star explodes, it pushes out a lot of gas from the centre of a galaxy. As that gas is leaving the galaxy, it is tugging uh, gravitationally on everything that's left within the galaxy, including the dark matter. So that tug from the expelled gas takes a little bit of dark matter with it. And what we found in our simulations is that this can act almost like a conveyor belt. If you, if you do this once, then the effect on the dark matter is pretty negligible because the dark matter is very heavy. It doesn't really want to move. But if you keep doing it, if you keep having stars exploding, and don't forget, you know, galaxies are huge. They've got many, many billions of stars, so there's plenty of them to explode. So if this keeps happening, then over time, you almost set up like a conveyor belt that's removing, mining dark matter from within the galaxy and taking it away. And this has quite an important effect on the properties of the, of the galaxy that remains. So I, I think, you know, if there's one thing to take away from all of this, it is the complexity of the lives of galaxies. These are complicated beasts. I, I almost start thinking of them as animals rather, rather than physical beings because they have such complicated lives. And all of these things change the galaxy that's left and therefore change the new stars and the planets that are going to form within that galaxy. So when we talk about all of this stuff, it can feel very remote and like it's out there somewhere in the universe. But this is actually the story of how our solar system and our Earth formed, which is a relatively late occurrence in the history of the universe. You've spoken, which I'd like to return you to, on, to of the difficulties of simulation. And one of them, again, from a layman's point of view, one would go, well, in a completely Newtonian universe, a simulation would seem like a you, know, you just need more computing welly and you can create simulate everything absolutely perfectly and everything is perfectly predictable. But, you know, we haven't been in the Newtonian universe for a hundred and some years. And the idea that there are chaotic effects, and maybe this is mathematical and maybe it's to do with the sort of quantum effects at, at root at the atomic level, you know, we have very, very unpredictable end states, probably end states. How do you kind of factor that in? Is it again a matter of just trusting statistics or does it produce a hard limit in what you can usefully do? A bit of both, I would say. And there's a lot going on here wrapped up in that question. So even if, so let's just go back to your Newtonian clockwork universe type picture. 
even if the universe really operated like that, and of course we don't think it does, but, but even if it really were clockwork and in principle we could calculate everything perfectly, we still wouldn't be able to do that just because the computers that we have and that we will have for the foreseeable future are nowhere near powerful enough to do that for the whole universe. So there's, there's always going to be approximations involved. And a lot of what we spend our time doing and trying to understand is how to make good approximations and how to understand the remaining limitations uh, that, that, that are intrinsic in having made those approximations. So that, that's sort of the first part of it. But as you allude to, there's also a second part to this, which is, in fact, the universe is also in some very profound sense unpredictable. And that comes down to two things. One is quantum mechanics, which wires a kind of unpredictability into the heart of physics, uh, so that down at the atomic level, uh, that there are certain things that simply are unpredictable according to the physical laws as best we understand them. They are intrinsically unpredictable. So that's that, that's part of it. And then the, the final sort of element of this is chaos. And, and chaos is the idea that even if you start with something wrong that's only very, very minor in your overall picture, eventually that will have profound effects. One of the most famous expressions of this uh, came from Edward Lorenz, who, who gave this lovely picture of a butterfly flapping its wings in, uh, in one part of the world, triggering a hurricane in another part of the world. And the idea is that it's sort of contributing to a domino effect where tiny initial change in the Earth's atmosphere can be magnified and, and blown up into something completely different. So how do you get past that in simulating the universe? These effects are real. We know that there are effects that create this kind of chaotic amplification of initially small mistakes. Well, what we fall back on is essentially the same as what climate scientists fall back on. So if you look at climate simulations and, and how they're predicting the future of our planet, they are, in effect, trying to do a weather forecast for 100 years' time. but because of this chaos, there is no way that a weather forecast for 100 years' time will be accurate. All you can say is that in some average statistical sense, these things, you, you know, these things wash out. So a butterfly flapping its wings might change whether there's going to be a hurricane in New York in seven days' time, but it won't on its own change the overall propensity for hurricanes to form. So you can sort of separate things into particular events. And, and in our case in cosmology, we're now talking about particular galaxies or particular strings in the cosmic web. So that's one thing that will probably forever be unpredictable. But on the other hand, you have what you would then think of as the climate, which is more like the, the types of galaxies you get, the mix of different shapes and sizes and what kind of things they have in them and the kind of patterns they form into on average. And those things we can show are predictable despite the, the individual underlying structures being unpredictable. Now, when you're testing your simulations, obviously you need to be able to map them onto what is observable in the universe, but that itself is not a straightforward thing. And I'm very interested in a passage you have where you talk about how you figure out from looking from essentially a point here towards this sort of apparently flat field of stars, how you figure out how far away the stars you're seeing actually are and the difference between seeing a star that's, you know, blue and close up or red and far away. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is this occupies a very large fraction of some people's time these days trying to work out, you know, that basic problem. You've, you've got a, essentially a two-dimensional image of the night sky coming from telescopes. So how do we get that depth perception. There are a number of tricks involved in that. I think the most profound one we have is the redshift effect. And um, you, you can think of this in the way that we think of Doppler shift, which is the, the name we give to say an, an ambulance is passing you by. And uh, as, as it comes past, you hear that the pitch of its siren changes 
because it's going from approaching you. And when it's approaching you, the, the pitch of the siren will, will sound higher. And when it's moving away, the pitch of the siren will sound lower. And that's just to do with the way that the sound wave is coming to you and the interaction between the motion of the ambulance and the sound wave itself. So when we look out into the universe, uh, one of the most famous facts about the universe is it's expanding. That means that uh, you can think of galaxies that are far away from us as receding, as though they're sort of that ambulance going off into the distance. Because they're receding, the, the nature of the waves that can get to us from that galaxy changes. And so we measure this as light, of course. Light is a type of wave. But this is what we call the redshift effect, that the color of that light changes in just the same way as the pitch of the ambulance changes. So if you can understand the colors of the objects, and in particular things like galaxies that you're looking at through your telescope, then you can gauge how far away those objects are. That's, that's certainly one way to do it. It's probably how the most prevalent way to do it. How do you know what colour they were originally? You don't. That, <laughs> that's, that's exactly it. It's, it's like trying to work out how fast is the ambulance moving away from me, but you might be able to do that if you knew what the pitch of the ambulance was to start with. But if you don't, then the sound alone isn't going to tell you exactly how fast that ambulance is moving. So now we have to have a bunch of tricks. We have to essentially use what we know about reasonable colours for galaxies, which in turn follows from, well, what colours of light do stars produce and how does that light get affected by the other gas and dust and so on that, that, that we know are in galaxies. And, and that gives us some sort of sense of what kind of colours should a galaxy be producing. And, and then we can compare that to the colours we're actually seeing but um, this becomes too much to do for humans. I mean, this would, this would just take up so much of our time. We're trying to do this for billions of galaxies. So if you imagine sort of sitting there with a picture of each galaxy and, and try, trying to figure this out for each one, it, it's just going to become completely prohibitive. So actually where we're going with all this is we're going into the realm of artificial intelligence and the way that computers can, uh, can do this hard work for us. Now, I, I don't, again, want to be too hung up on the difficulties of the wonderful work you're doing, but obviously simulations require you to apply stable rules, even if very complicated ones, to your initial conditions. And there are sort of two major problems that you raise, which are the points at which these stable rules cease to work at all, which are the singularities of first black holes, and then if the you know, Big Bang itself, the beginning of the universe. How do you kind of get around that? Mm, yeah, I mean, it's it, this is a fundamental problem that um, I suppose that, you know, the Big Bang in a way is our biggest headache as cosmologists, because what we're doing when we do a simulation is trying to trace out cause and effect. So with the weather forecast, this is particularly clear. You know, you can't predict the weather tomorrow unless you know what the weather is doing today. It's simply impossible to just dream this up, uh, isolated from any information. Now, in, in cosmology, we are also interested in cause and effect. We're trying to build up this coherent story of how the universe has unfolded and how ultimately it's given rise to us. But then you get into this problem of what what was the original cause? You know, we we can trace this further and further back through time. And as we were talking about a moment ago, you know, the universe is expanding. That means as you look further and further back in time, the universe was smaller and smaller as we go back further and further in time. And eventually, if you just sort of naively extrapolate that backwards, you reach a point where the universe uh, seemingly had zero size. Now, that, that's an extraordinary thing just to try and contemplate, that all of this vastness was somehow compacted into an infinitesimal dot. And uh, in fact, you know, the, the, the maths of trying to make sense of that doesn't make sense either. So, in, you know, it doesn't make any kind of um, intuitive sense to imagine the whole universe in a dot, uh, and nor does it make mathematical sense to put the universe into a dot. And that's what we call a singularity, where you, you, really the maths just breaks down. Our 
understanding of physics at that point is useless. We, we don't really know what to make of that. And that is such a fundamental problem for us as cosmologists, because if we're trying to tell a story of how things came about, where are we going to start? You know, if not at the beginning, where are we going to start? So either we have to try and start at the beginning, but we can't because the maths makes no sense, or we have to start sometime after the beginning. But then that's still a problem because what are you going to say the universe was doing at that moment? What are your assumptions about what the universe was up to in its first few seconds? So now we we have ways that we now deal with that. So we have ideas based around quantum mechanics. We think the answer to what this singularity is really telling us is that our current picture is incomplete, that we need a better understanding of how quantum mechanics affected the very early period in, in the universe. And we have some preliminary calculations about what that might do, that based around an idea called inflation, which changes the picture of the early universe. It essentially gets rid of the singularity in some sense and, and replaces it with a slightly mysterious but more manageable period, early period of the universe's history, where it was expanding in a very particular way. And we can do calculations of what that would mean, how that would then impact on the universe as it gets to sort of one or two seconds old. And, and the remarkable thing, you can, you can tell from what I'm saying, this is all quite speculative. It involves physics that's way beyond what we can directly test here on Earth, way out of reach of something like the Large Hadron Collider. And yet, when we do these calculations and we put the results into simulations, they do lead on to producing the universe very similar to, to the one that we see today. And so despite all of this speculation, you know, we, we really are, we are layering speculations on top of each other at this point. I was going to say, is it naive to insert the almighty into that? that <laughs> well, gap? luckily we don't need to. I mean, I think that's incredibly lucky in all of this that we don't, you know, if you just have a singularity, then you almost do need to insert the almighty because we, there is no way to calculate what the result of a singularity is by definition. However, when we start using these uh, sort of more modern ideas like inflation and the, the role of quantum mechanics, we don't need to uh, speculate too much about what originally set the universe in motion. These quantum mechanical processes and the process of inflation kind of makes the universe forget <laughs> how it got started. And instead, it imprints on the early universe a much more predictable, essentially, it makes the universe quite uniform, pretty much the same from one place to another, but with very slight differences. So, you know, just one part of the universe will just be ever so slightly denser than another part of the universe. And, and that's irrespective of what happened before. So this is sort of removing the need to worry too much about how was the universe actually created and instead just working out that actually the early universe behaved in a very particular way irrespective of precisely how it was created but this question of how you track how well your simulations working on the universe as a whole there's a lovely story you describe about your future collaborator fabio governato where you first met could you describe what 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 put you on board with his view of how his simulations were working. Well, well, I mean, I think I was slightly naive at that time. And I went to my first ever scientific conference and my future collaborator, uh, Fabio Governato, was showing some of his latest results. Uh, he'd been working on trying to produce galaxies that looked at all like the real things. This was at a time in the, in the early 2000s where that wasn't really possible yet. You know, no, nobody was able to simulate galaxies for all of the reasons that we've discussed already. But he, he had one of the first set of simulations that got pretty close to creating something in the computer that, that kind of convincingly looked like a galaxy. Now, I saw this projected on the screen at this conference, and I really wasn't impressed. You know, I was, I was used to seeing the beautiful pictures from the Hubble Space Telescope and so on. And, and, and this, to me, it just looked like a sort of puffy blob, more or less. It, it, it really, I mean, it really didn't look that much like a galaxy. And 
then we went on it was it was lunchtime and they served up this really quite horrible pizza it was this sort of thick crust not very nice doughy pizza and and i got talking to fabio who of course was italian and i said well you you know your galaxies are like this pizza real galaxies are supposed to be lovely thin crust uh, extended spiraling masterpieces but yours are more sort of blobs of doughy and not particularly nice I, I don't know what possessed me really but i mean he took it incredibly well he said well everybody else's galaxies look like dough balls so at least mine looks like a pizza <laughs> and, and you know we hit it off and and then we we ended up collaborating i suppose for well over a decade until he retired so i mean yeah I, I was I, done I, well i wouldn't to be honest i wouldn't recommend it to any of my students as a, as a way to get a collaboration started uh, but but it worked for me no i had a few weeks ago i was talking to Michio kaku who's you know in roughly all bailiwick and he's very excited about the possibility that quantum computers, because of their unimaginably greater power, will be able to simulate quantum processes more or less exactly. That the you know the sheer computing well it will make it possible to do calculations that at the moment are only speculative. How how much do you endorse that view? I think if you take a, a medium to long term view, I absolutely endorse that. The difficulty with quantum computers, without getting into any technical. A, a, a detail. I mean, the, the difficulty is very much the engineering side of them, that it's incredibly hard to make one of these computers. And even now, even when quantum computers are being sort of heralded as coming our way, if you actually look at what's technologically possible right now, it is just, you know, the first baby steps into having quantum computers. Now, that will nonetheless, that, I mean, it will have a profound impact on various areas of science and technology. But it is very hard to tell from there, how long are we going to wait until we have a fully fledged quantum computer that can really operate at the kind of scales we need to be simulating something like the universe. And I think if you go and talk to experts, you get a range of different views. But the, you know, the, the overall sense in that community is we just don't know yet. There are many engineering challenges still to be overcome to really get this to the point where we have reliable, large-scale quantum computing. So I, I think I would agree with the long-term take that eventually quantum computers are going to become central to these kind of efforts and indeed to many, many more things. But betting on when that will happen, and I, you know, I, I wouldn't even bet on whether that will happen during my career. I, I think you know, there are so many challenges to overcome that we may be waiting quite some time. However, there are other people who are more optimistic. So let's, let's see. Ask me again in 10 years. Finally, I just want to ask you, you do have your The Call is Coming from Inside the House chapter where you address the, well, I mean, Nick Bostrom's its most pr famous proponent, but the idea that actually we don't need to create our own simulations. We are a simulation, that we might already be living in, living in some quantum computer that somebody's invented many, many years ago. Can you tell me how, how seriously you take that because you know, a lot of quite serious scientists and philosophers do seem to think of it as a non-trivial possibility. Yeah. So I think I'm on the end of the spectrum that doesn't take it particularly seriously. And I think this comes from dealing with the realities of how we put simulations together today. So, you know, Nick Bostrom's argument is made very carefully, I should say, that you know, he doesn't go around saying, oh, we probably live in a simulation. His argument, which goes back to, to his, his work in 2003, says, well, you know, one of a number of things could be true. But if you, if you imagine that we continue to develop simulations and that our computing power continues to get better, then it, it could be a matter of time before we perform simulations inside which there is sufficient detail that life and then ultimately intelligent life can actually evolve within those simulations. And, and, and then, of course, he makes the leap to say, well, if, if that's going to happen, then how do we rule out the possibility that we ourselves are already inside that simulation? But he's very careful with his argument, right? He, he, he says he is not saying that that logically entails 
that we are inside a simulation. He's saying it, it tends to suggest either that we're inside a simulation or that there are some limitations on what simulations will ever be able to do. And, and I think it's that latter bit that is absolutely key here, because if you look at what we can do today with simulations and you compare that to the richness of reality, the gap, it, it couldn't be larger. It's, it's hard to express just how big that is. And in a sense, you know, the whole book is building up layer by layer to make that exact point, that it is such a big gap that in effect, it's, you know, you, you, you can do some calculations, say, well, what kind of technology would we need to recreate the whole universe with high fidelity? And the answer is, you would actually need to make use of the resources of our entire universe, just to simulate the universe, if you really wanted to do it perfectly. And that follows because of a number of theories in physics about how information can be processed. So the first thing to say is, you know, we cannot ever conceive of doing a simulation where we reproduce this universe in all its glorious detail. So this already puts a big gap between, you know, the idea that we'll just be, you know, performing these simulations and, 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 and it'll, we'll think of it as sort of almost nothing to perform a simulation in which life evolves. That that picture that I think other people, not Nick Bostrom, but I think other people maybe have picked up on that idea and, and give the impression that it's, you know, it's just a natural extrapolation of technology and we'll get there in the end. That, I think, is where all of this falls over. So even if one is optimistic and we think technology will continue to develop, science will continue to progress, we're going to remain interested in these questions of where we came from. The idea that that then entails we're going to be running these simulations with civilizations inside them, uh, that is a mistake in, in my view. Well, and is it so, conceivable a much bigger universe might have the resources to oh, run yes. a simulation of a universe our size? Yes, indeed. Yes. So, so then you can say, well, maybe you know, there's a higher level of reality with vastly greater resources at its disposal, and, and they, they are performing our simulation, to which I say yes perhaps. However, when you get to that point, what are we really talking about here? We're talking about an entity with such power that it goes far beyond what we could dream of humanity ever achieving. We, we are talking about a god, essentially. So then why are we then framing this as a scientific discussion? I think it's a philosophical discussion at that point. And of course, you can trace the roots of that a long way back, you know, through Descartes and back to second century Gnostic Christianity and uh, then back to Plato and Seneca. So, so when you start talking about it that way, I think you're then firmly planting yourself in the tradition of these ideas that are in fact millennia old. And, and so the idea of this being a simulation hypothesis, I think is just a rebranding of a, of a pre-existing set of ideas. Oh, that's fascinating. I shall go back to playing The Sims. Thank you very much indeed for your time, Andrew Podson. Thank you.